Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth, Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the lake, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Smith. So we have enjoyed over the last, I would say, few months, a, a, uh, a healthy uh, influx of some, of some newer folks, which, which we just dearly love, dearly love. And it, it also underscores the need to go back and, and retell the stories, right? And uh, do uh, the hard work of education all over again, re-education, so that folks know what it is that you're trying to do, folks know what it is that you're trying to say. So let me say, first of all, I'm I'm glad to be your pastor. My name is John. Welcome to everyone. And uh, my goal is for all of us uh, to say, each of us and all of us, to say yes to Jesus. It is my goal. I mean, I, I would like for you to, at some point, to be able to articulate how it is that you have been saved or salvaged or converted, right, to the way, Jesus the way. And to even say it like that, Jesus the way, which, as you know, is borrowed from Scripture. I am the way, says Jesus, the truth and the life. But to understand Jesus as the way would also indicate that Jesus is the way as opposed to a different way. And what I hope to do as your pastor is I hope to preach you toward being a part of this way so that you might be not only saved to and for something, but from something, all of it. I hope you understand yourself to be saved from something, but also to and for something, this, this way of being alive, this way of life, this Jesus-shaped sort of life. And, and really, I've, I've, been, I've been trying to do such a thing since uh, I started here as your, as your pastor back in the 60s. And <laughs> inevitably, when, when you do preach somewhere uh, for the same place for, for 15 years or so, you inevitably are going to revisit uh, certain metaphors, analogies, uh, video clips, gimmicks, right? For example, for example, if you are new to the church, um, just listen to the reaction when I put this on the screen. Amen. You hear that audible groan out there like, oh. The iceberg again. <laughs> now, we, we get into uh, the Sermon on the Mount starting next week that the iceberg is going to make a triumphant return. I just, just, got, just got to, right? But the iceberg is, is one of the ways that I've said, hey, we're, we're, as Christians, we're more than just what happens on the top, right? We're, we're all of that that is there lurking beneath the uh, level of the water. There's also this, and you all know this about me, I I love this whole thing. This is from the movie Les Miserables, that's Liam Neeson. This is the scene, I love it so much. I've tried to find every possible way to squeeze this particular scene into a sermon, uh, and it works every time, amen. All right. There's this, 
Uh, anybody remember this and, and how we use these? Like this was something we use as we read the book of Revelation, and I will never forget this, this beautiful view of all of you wearing 3D glasses as we walked through the book of Revelation, so as to indicate to you that the book of Revelation is not something that's two-dimensional and flattened out on the screen in front of you. It's three-dimensional. You're in the action. You're in it. You're in it. We said this about Revelation all the time. It is not about what's going to happen. It is more precisely about what happens all the time <laughs> and is happening now, right? And then, you all, there's this. Mm. Yes. It's one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Uh, oh, hey, go back. As is, oh, that may be a, a problem on mine. Well, so I'll just have to show you. This is another one I use periodically. This is the old Dr. Seuss, my book about me, and, and that is me. Now, some of you have heard this before, just nod along as if it's new, okay? And this is my uh, study Bible. It is messed up. Here's how I want you to understand these two elements in my hand. This is the story of what it is God is trying to do in and through me and us. This is the story of God, capital S, right? And this is the story of John. And what I have said to you over the years is, man, we've got to make sure that we know how these stories fit together. What I'm hoping, and I said this to you earlier, what I'm hoping is that you would understand that it's best for your story to find its place and its purpose and a meaning as a chapter in the larger story that tells us what it is that God's trying to do in the world. Remember this, right? And remember, I've done this too to say, and, and it doesn't work very well when you do it like this. When you say to God, yes, God, I would love for you to be a, just a major part of my life, but I'd like for you to fit into my story. It just doesn't fit, doesn't fit. And I've said this to you too. Look, it, it matters what book is on the outside because where this analogy is concerned, the book is on the outside defines success. It defines all the important words of life, the journey of life. Whatever book is on the outside, is what you really are. There is a difference in being uh, a Christian who happens to be a person in the business world than a business person who happens to be Christian, right? Can you tell which book's on the outside and defining the terms? There is a difference between being an American who happens to be Christian as opposed to a Christian who happens to be an American. Whatever that grand narrative is on the outside, that's who you really are. There's a difference. There's a difference between even these, these great roles. There's a difference in, in, between being a family person, in my case, a husband and dad, who happens to be a Christian, and being a Christian who happens then to be a husband and dad. You go about being a husband and dad differently if this book's on the outside. Does that make some sense? I will trip over this, Jason, so I'm going to hand this back to you so that I'm not a danger to myself. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, throughout the New Testament, okay, there's that, and now there's that. That is representative of Rome. Throughout the New Testament, Rome is always lurking in the background of all of the books in the New Testament, and Rome seeks to be the grand narrative in which you are meant to find yourself. The Roman Empire demanded to be the book on the outside. It demanded to be the book on the outside. The competitor kingdom lurking in the background, serving as important context for all of the books of the New Testament. From the Gospels through the book of Revelation, the Roman Empire was both enemy and tempter violently threatening and opposing God and the kingdom of God while also being a source of great temptation and intoxication. When the Roman Empire, like the Egyptians and like the Babylonians before them, when they weren't violently attacking, they were lulling the people of God to sleep, offering safety and security and wealth 
and prosperity and comfort and all of it for the low, low price of, ver- of blurred lines, compromised values, and an ultimate sense of allegiance. Rome suggested that you could live comfortably as a Roman citizen who just happened to be a Christian. But if you got those, if you got that order out of whack, there would be serious consequences. Rome could not tolerate competition. There was no room for anyone who would pledge first to Christ and kingdom before pledging to Rome. The book, let's say, the grand narrative, the story of Rome, it was supposed to be on the outside. And the Christians who happened to be living in the Roman Empire weren't citizens. They were threats. They were threats to the status quo, enemies of the state, disloyal, dangerous rebels and revolutionaries. And Rome was not going to tolerate rebels and revolutionaries. Well, John the Baptist was a threat. Yes, I know, Herod was the one that ultimately put him in prison, but Herod never did anything without checking with Rome first. Herod lived in the pocket of Roman power. So John the Baptist was a threat. He had to be dealt with. And Jesus knew if John the Baptist had to be dealt with, Jesus knew it was only a matter of time before they came for him because Though we don't always understand this about Jesus, they understood it about Jesus. Jesus was a threat to the empire because Jesus was not beholden to the empire. I wish more Christians were a threat to the empire. Jesus was a revolutionary. Now, that's a mouthful. But I would submit that Jesus is a rebel and a revolutionary. I would suggest that Rome rightly understood Jesus to be a threat, and I would suggest that the proof was in the pudding. In fact, if we're gonna talk about Jesus the way, we have to take seriously the fact that Jesus was in fact a threat to the empire. Friends, Jesus is still a threat to empires that are competitor kingdoms to the kingdom. To take seriously then that Jesus is the way is to take seriously whether or not I too am a threat to the empire. Now, we have our young people, our students here, but none of the kids are in here, so this is safe. I'm safe to say this to you, right? All right. I think Jesus wants you to be a threat to the empire. I think Jesus wants us to make the empire nervous. What does he mean by empire? (laughs) I mean any story that would understand itself to be a competitor to the book that's on the outside. And the book that's supposed to be on the outside is the one that looks up and says, oh, we have but one king, and there is but one kingdom, and so there are marching orders, and while my marching orders will in fact take me through all of these different rooms and hallways, the halls of power, the halls of business, the halls of family relationships, while my life and my life of faith will take me through all of those different hallways and rooms, I understand at my core that what I am first and foremost is a Christian who happens to be fill in the blank. And for that reason, I should be understood as a threat. You should be understood as a threat. We should be understood as a threat to anybody who would ask for our ultimate pledge of faith and loyalty. Now do you get it? To follow Jesus, who is understood at least throughout Epiphany as Jesus the way, to follow Jesus would have been to put oneself in harm's way because Rome it's not like competition. And you're supposed to be competition to Rome. I am too. It's for this reason that Jesus withdraws to Capernaum. It, the word perhaps should have been escapes to Capernaum. And goes 
back to a place. Now this, my friend, Paul Baker, and Paul was not too long ago right there in Capernaum. These are pictures that he gave me. He was there just a couple weeks ago, about a month ago with students from, from Bethany High School. So thank you, Paul, very much. These are the ruins of the very place where Jesus withdrew and, and escaped. Now, it turns out this area uh, was kind of familiar to those who understand Scripture. This was Capernaum, the area of Zebulun and, and Naphtali. Those were sons of Abraham, and so those were plots of land given to these people. And way back when, it was the Assyrian Empire that had plunged the entire area into darkness. It was the Assyrians that occupied the ground, and the darkness was their occupation of the ground, right? But it says in Isaiah 9 that they had seen a great light, and we think that that means Hezekiah, who would in fact be a great king and bring some sense of light and reform to the whole area. Now there's a different occupying force. It is the Roman Empire. And friends, don't think we completely understand how broad and how strong and how intimidating the Roman Empire was. They controlled everything. In fact, so much so that this was now a similarly dark place. Capernaum, Naphtali, Zebulun, similarly dark because of the Roman occupation. But also similarly, God's up to it again, light is on the way. Light is on the way. It's important that you have that historical backdrop. Yes, this is Israelite territory, but it is occupied Israelite territory, so much so that it's a dark place that desperately needs light because the Roman Empire had so gripped everybody, including Andrew and Peter and James and John. The Roman Empire had such a, a, a grip on their necks that what they lived day in and day out must have felt like darkness. So verse 12, we've already heard it. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And then Jesus says a very dangerous thing. It's still dangerous. And so Jesus walked around amongst those people gripped by this darkness known as the Roman occupation and said this, repent, stop living their way and live this other way. For there's a new kingdom now at hand. There's a new kingdom now, right here. There's a new kingdom. So repent doesn't here mean feel really bad about the dumb thing that you did, right? I mean, if you need to feel bad about that, great. To be better, it's okay, whatever. Let's get from here to there. That's not what this means. This means do differently. This means live differently. This means be different. If you understand yourself today, as a citizen of the Roman Empire who happens to be a believer, you need to do that differently. Well, let's, let's update it. If sitting, sweet people, if sitting where you are today, in your pew, if you understand yourself to be a citizen of some other, some other empire, but you happen also to be a Christian, Jesus is saying to you, and even see Jesus' finger pointing at you as Jesus says, you need to repent then, because that's not how we do it. That's not the way. We aren't Roman citizens, empire citizens who happen to be Christian. We are Christians who just worry the empire to death unless we aren't. Jesus said, I need you to worry the empire. Jesus said, I, I need you to recognize that you're in the grip of the empire. And once you recognize that you are in the grip of the empire, here's what I need you to do. Repent. Turn and do differently. Hopefully then, that gives you some idea of what is happening. 
as Jesus walked up on a couple of guys. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Familiar story, right? Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. I love this part. For they were fishermen. <laughs> well, why else would they be casting nets into the sea? Thank you for the clarification. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fish for people. And, and we probably don't consider how stunning this is, but it says here in the Bible that immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, I read a couple of different commentators this week who said the same thing. I'm inclined to believe this, that probably these were lowest rung on the ladder employees of the Roman Empire. Probably they leased some space so that they could fish and then supply the empire with a certain number of fish based on whatever the quote of the agreement was, and then they would have some also to take home. To leave their nets at this point would have been understood, if all of that is true, then to leave their nets at that point would have been understood as an act of rebellion, maybe even dereliction of duty. And friends, they left immediately. How, how do we understand this? How, how and why did they leave their nets immediately? And what is it that they were asked to do? And we have always kind of understood, and I think there is some element of this here, we've always understood this as a call to evangelism. Perhaps so. But perhaps then we need to make sure that we understand what we mean when we say evangelism. Because I don't think what he was calling Andrew and Peter to in this moment was that moment of service where all heads are bowed and all eyes are closed. You know what I'm talking about? Make the decision that then allows you to accept some gift from God that allows God to then deal with your sinfulness, but it doesn't actually change your life. No, no, what they're being called to here, and by the way, what we're being called to here, I think it is evangelism, but it's something way more dangerous than that. It is, hey, you guys, how do you like being on the lowest rung of the ladder and in the grip of the empire. Would you like something better? Would you like something more? And we said this last week, it probably bears repeating this week. Would you like to come and see? Another guy I read this week said, this moment <laughs> was the moment when their frustration with their external circumstances aligned perfectly with their hopes and dreams. Let's call that internal circumstances. Jesus comes along at just the right time and says the right thing. And they said, you know what? It's worth the risk. Now, did they know how big and dangerous it would be? I, I, don't, I don't know that they did. It was likely bigger and more dangerous than they knew at the time. But perhaps they recognize that being slaves to the empire, <laughs> there's always so much future and hope in it. Right? Have you, ever, have you ever awakened to find yourself a slave of a different kind of empire, a different story? Verse 21, as he went from there, he saw two other brothers James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them too. They, feeling that same ache, immediately left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And they joined what would end up being understood as something of a political movement, not just a religious and spiritual movement, which it was, but it was more than that or else it wouldn't have been a threat to Rome. You get it? I mean, listen to this. Jesus then went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Now, keep in mind, this big, ugly backdrop known as the Roman Empire that did not tolerate competition, right? 
Hear all of, all of these words against that backdrop. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all of the sick, all those afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them, y'all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, the 10 cities, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, no way Roman's going to tolerate this for very long. Because I'm sure they rightly understood that this Jesus was being obedient to a different power. They rightly understood that the kingdom that he was embodying and announcing and implementing was at cross purposes with the purposes of the empire. Are you dangerous or not? Am I, are we dangerous or not? No, John, I'm a Christian, I'm nice. Well, God bless you. (laughs) And I do think, as we're gonna get to in a second, That that part is indispensable. The capacity to love is indispensable. But friends, when we use the language of Jesus the way, you need to know that we're trying to say to adults, to students, and to children, you are meant to upset their apple cart. Okay? And if you don't believe it, y'all, just read the Sermon on the Mount, which we will do. It's nuts. And we'll get to some of the nuttiest parts, but if you don't get it, here's what I think will happen after a few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. You either go, wow, (laughs) I'm leaving my nets in one form or another and I'm following, or you're gonna say, I don't need this. There there will come a moment in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus will actually look at his audience and then beyond his audience at us and will say this. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. My words, not Jesus's. You are the light of the world unless you aren't. Unless you aren't. But Jesus' intention is that you would be the light of the world. And Jesus' hope is that you would let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Here's a word that maybe we don't use often enough, maybe I don't use often enough as as your pastor. Here it is. You know what Jesus seeks from you, from me, from us? Obedience. How does that sit with you? (laughs) Jesus asks you, asks me, asks us to obey. To obey. Him. (laughs) I probably should have clarified that. To obey Him, Jesus. Even and perhaps especially when that means disobeying the other emperors in your midst. Let me ask you a very difficult question. Who gets your obedience and who should get less of it? Who gets your obedience and who should get less of it? It says in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Seems like the psalmist knows that this is a dangerous path, right? So the psalmist says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be 
afraid. It's almost as if in our hymnal, in our sacred text, that part that we understand as the hymnal, it's almost as if God knew that there were moments when you almost had to sing your way to independence, when you had to sing your way to faith, when you had to sing your way to a new future. Speaking of singing one's way to a new future, are you familiar with the country of Estonia? Am I saying that right? Estonia, Estonia, E E. Eh, thank you. Eh. It is a little country immediately to the west of Russia. Russia. For decades, it was under the thumb of Russia as part of the old Soviet Union, Estonia. Now, here's the thing about Estonians. They, a couple things you need to know about Estonians. They don't like being under the thumb of Russia. <laughs> and they love to sing. So somewhere around 1987, they decided that they'd had enough, and so they decided that they were gonna fight back the best way they knew how. Now, we have used words like rebel, rebellion, and revolution, and we know by looking at the news that there are particular ways that that happens, right? And sometimes they are ugly and violent ways that that happens. But not all rebellions and revolutions, even the successful ones, not all of them are violent. Some of them are wildly impactful without being violent, without being sucked into the temptation to fight on the terms of the occupying power. In 1987, here's what they decided to do. We've had enough of this, they said, so let's all get together and we're gonna organize and y'all, we are gonna sing. And we're gonna sing. And it was frustrating to Russia because you know what they were singing? Hymns. Sometimes it was patriotic songs about Estonia, and sometimes it was hymns, and they would gather a thousand at a time, and then 20,000 at a time, and then a hundred thousand at a time, until in 1991, they gathered, and there were 300,000 of them, and they sang, and in their music, they said, enough to the empire known as Russia. Did it work? show of mass defiance in the Baltic region of the Soviet Union. Whenever you give free speech to people, then things get out of hand. This singing together, this was our power. If 20,000 people start to sing one song, then you just cannot shut them up. It's impossible. What role can singing play when a nation is faced with annihilation by its neighbors? Can culture hold a people together? The small country of Estonia has faced these questions. freedom through singing was the most important thing maybe in my life. This is the story of how culture saved a nation. I suspect we could learn a lot from the Estonians who sang their way to freedom. And these are words that were before us last week, and I, I want to revisit them again. By opening our lives to God in Christ, we become new creatures. This experience which Jesus spoke of as the new birth is essential 
if we are to be transformed nonconformists, or, or the word that we would use today as revolutionaries, only through an inner spiritual transformation do we gain the strength to fight vigorously the evils of the world in a humble and loving spirit. I found this one this week, too. And, and before I, I show it to you, let me reiterate what I am here to do as your pastor. I am trying to talk you into rebellion and revolution that starts with surrender. And some of you need to think seriously about the first step, surrender. Let me, let me say that better. All of us need to think clearly about the first step of surrender. E. Stanley Jones, I'm, I'm really into E. Stanley Jones these days. He says this, I have received the Lord by surrender, receptivity, and faith, so I shall live in him by the same three things. Unless I'm not. Unless I don't. Unless I won't. But the reason we gather around this table each week is in the hope that with a little piece of bread and a little sip from this cup, please don't sip from the cup, just dip your bread in the cup. <laughs> but a little bit of this, this juice from this cup that you might get just enough sustenance to take the first step, which today might just be for you, waving the white flag of surrender and saying, okay, Jesus the way. Jesus the way, which is not the way I am right now. Okay. If you're going to help us today to set this table, meant to nourish and sustain the people of God today, go ahead and come on down. And Heavenly Father, as they come, we would ask so humbly that you would bless these elements, these pieces of bread and these cups. Would you bless these elements, God? And with them, please do what only you can do. Would you then use these elements to fill us and sustain us, to energize us, to strengthen us so that we could at least do the first thing, which is to surrender. May somebody today have the grace and the courage and the strength to surrender. For the surrendered in the room, God, would you sustain them and, and strengthen them so that they can take the next step, which is to openly and humbly and lovingly rebel. May we take our places in the revolution that is ongoing, revolution of hope and purpose. Give us just enough here in these moments through the bread and the cup. Give us just enough that we would have what it takes to stand. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to exit your pews to the left. That is all of you who would like to participate. Because if you would, if you would prefer not to participate, that's okay too. It's, it's, it's all invitation. All are invited, none are compelled. But if you would like to partake with us today, if you would exit your pews to the left, your left, and come forward with your hands cupped and approach the person in front of you who's holding a plate of bread. And please come with your hands cupped because that is how we receive grace. You don't snatch it, you don't buy it, you can't charge it or steal it, you receive it. It's a gift. When you get close enough to a person holding a piece of bread, he or she will take that piece of bread, press it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. And when you do, that person holding the cup will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then find a place to pray. If you are anything like me, after having sat with this passage of scripture for 
all these days this week, I, I know that I myself have prayers to pray <laughs> that will go something like this. I surrender. What have I not surrendered? I, I surrender. What have I not yet surrendered? Where is my spot in the rebellion, the revolution? Now, if you come to one of these side padded altars, which you're certainly welcome to do, we, we will assume that you're there for a prayer for healing, physical, mental, emotional, familial, relational, and, and somebody. We have some great folks that will meet you there and pray that prayer for you, a prayer for healing. If you come to one of these mourner's benches up here, and, and I hope that we can post-pandemic figure out how, figure out where these altars are. <laughs> If you come up here, we won't assume anything except that you are on the journey as well. And at some point, I will touch you on the back, the neck, the shoulder, and just remind you that you are not alone because you're not alone. Yes, you can circle right back around and pray in your pew. And God hears those prayers too. I'm just, I'm just sure of it. But do pray. What more from me, God? What more from me? If you would like to make a special trip, there is a bowl of water here meant to remind you of the moment of your baptism. When this was all made official that sure enough, you're a part of the movement. If you need to be reminded that you're part of the movement, this bowl of water is a good place to do it. John, am I eligible to come? Listen, if you, like your pastor, recognize that you need this grace, then you're eligible. It doesn't matter how you messed up this week, this morning, doesn't matter. If you recognize your need for grace, then this is the place for you. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you, and every time you eat of it, remember me. Later on, he would take the cup and he would say, and this is my blood shed for you. And every time you drink of it, remember me. If you need something a little less public and a little more prepackaged, that's what those stations back there are for. And they're already wearing masks. Thank you. We want to honor your being careful today. So that's available to you in the back. Everyone else. All are invited, none are compelled, if you would now. Stand to your feet, exit your pews to the left to receive these gifts of God meant to nourish and sustain the people of God. Come on ahead.
I'm going to offer up a prayer for confession before turning it over to Jason for prayers of intercession. And then he will guide us through the Lord's Prayer to close. And at all points throughout this mini season of prayer, you would be welcome to come to the front. Heavenly Father, we confess that at times the wrong story is on the outside. And it might be, God, that we are amongst those who force fit our faith inside of our own story that we grip so tightly. Or it might be that there is another story that's on the outside that dictates the terms of our lives, that defines all the most important words of life. And hear us now as we confess, if necessary, hear us now as we confess that there is some book on the outside that is not the story of God and God's love for God's people. And now as I get out of the way, I would invite you to pray that prayer. What story is on the outside and is in the place where the story of God ought to be? as I turn this over to Jason. May the Almighty God have mercy on all of us and forgive us our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit keep us in eternal life. And we just continue in the posture of prayer that you are here in the sanctuary or if you're watching us at home. We do want to turn our prayers towards prayers of intercession. And it's something that we say each week in our staff meeting when we gather together to pray that we want to recognize that each of you and all of us come into this space with something that you cannot carry alone. And so whatever is the greatest need right now that you know it's not far from your prayers, that thing in your life, that thing in your heart that you know you need God, would you pray for that person? that issue, that situation, that world event, whatever weighs heavy on you that you cannot carry alone, would you bring that to God now in prayer? We haven't done this in a while, but knowing that everyone needs someone to pray for them, would you turn and pray for the person on your left? Would you turn and pray for the person on your right? So that we know that each person who's come into this space, whether they've come with a friend or they've come alone, they have been prayed for and they've prayed for someone near. And now, Lord, we ask that you would come alongside a few folks who need your healing and your touch and your presence. God, we pray for our dear friend, Laura Hardy, and ask God you would bring her healing and strength. God, we ask for your loving presence to be close by our side. And God, we pray for a cancer-free future for Laura. God, we ask that you would continue to come alongside some folks that need you each day. God, we ask that you would be with Glenn and Betty Fain, that you'd be with Carolyn Martin. God, we ask that you would come alongside of those who have experienced loss this week. Got word last night that Matt Simmons' mother passed away. So God, we ask that you would come alongside of Matt and Allie and their family. I was talking to our good friend, Bill Patterson, that his mom, Irma Patterson, has been placed on hospice care. And so God, we ask that you would come alongside of that family and Irma in what seems to be her last days. 
And I got a note this morning from my friend Brian Nollenberger, who has a dear friend, Hazel, who's in hospice care in Bentonville, Arkansas. And God, we ask that your grace would transition her in peace from this life to the next when the time comes, and that you would surround all who love Hazel. And there's no doubt a variety of other issues and causes. And so God, in all of our lives, we surrender God these moments to you, asking that your love and grace would come for us where we need it the most. And God, we do ask that you would come for those who really need you. This morning, those who are hurting, those who are lonely, pray for the incarcerated. God, we pray for those without hope. And God, we ask that you would transform us into be a whole people that would be some of the answers to the prayers that we ask in this world. And God, would you transform us by this prayer, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray in church. It'll be on the screens in front of you at home and here in the sanctuary. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.